This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Bit of a back and forth, although they didn't come face to face. House of Commons is not in session right now between Justin Trudeau and Pierre Polyevre. And I'm fascinated by, well, I'm fascinated by the dynamic there because there's two things going on. Clearly, um, Polyevre feels the momentum, feels the push, and feels the ability to sort of, you know, you got a wounded animal or like a boxer in the ring. Polly ever sees this and he's seen this for several months now. So he's given he's given jabs and roundhouses on a pretty regular basis to Justin Trudeau. More so than Andrew Shear was more so than Aaron O'Toole was able to do. Some of that was circumstantial, uh, virtual parliament, covid pandemic, all that stuff. Pierre Polly ever doesn't have to worry about things like that. Justin Trudeau, meantime, is trying to deflect those blows trying to get to turn around. I think he's got that person. I mean, I like my job. You might like your job. You know, that person that Monday's a struggle. Oh, they're so desperate to get to Friday at four o'clock, five o'clock, punch that clock, get out of Dodge, um, <laughs> head to the car, drive as fast away in, in Christian Freeland-esque fashion from their workplace as possible. To me, that's Trudeau in these particular circumstances right now. He's bobbing, he's weaving, but he is also surviving. Politics is pretty tribal right now. You're kind of one team or the other, red team, blue team, yellow team, green team. But I do think there's a ton of people sitting in the middle watching this with interest. Yesterday, Justin Trudeau was asked about the potential for anger among the public. He couldn't control this, and he didn't flinch, and he didn't smile. But this was a CBC reporter, and before you judge that, listen to the comment. He didn't appreciate uh, members of Trudeau's cabinet giggling, guffawing, chortling at this question. He didn't appreciate it one bit. And then you'll hear Trudeau answer from here on in. Prime Minister Tom Power with CBC. Uh, Pierre Polyev is blaming you for pretty much every problem facing the country, whether that's crime. (laughs) Big laugh from the gallery. That's great. Um, Crime, inflation, a shortage of housing. And looking at the polls, I'm wondering if you think that message is sticking. If you think there's a large number of Canadians who blame you, not for trying to solve their problems, but making them worse. One thing we've heard right across the country is that Canadians are going through a tough time right now. Inflation has given them a big kick in the teeth over the past past year and a half. After the extraordinarily difficult situation that COVID was, and now interest rates causing huge challenges on home buyers, homeowners, uh, and people are really feeling it. No wonder um, people are feeling anxious and upset. All right, so that's how he handles it. But I think what's misguided in the answer and in the response, and listen, he should be, uh, people have, have hit on Trudeau before for uh, for excoriating cabinet members and putting them on the whip's couch and saying, why did you do that? Why did you say that? He should be incensed that anybody even cracked a smile. It's not funny. It's not funny that Canadians are blaming you, your leader, you, the party, you, the arms of that party being in cabinet. It's not funny. Being angry isn't funny. People have their pain right now. They're not, by the way, they're not angry in a personal fashion. They're incredibly frustrated. They feel they're not being heard. They feel the um, response is quite cynical or ignorant. That's how they feel they're allowed to feel that way. 
Pierre Polyevre, meantime, followed up by noting that Justin Trudeau's accusation that Polyevre is trying to inflame Canada and make everything seem worse, he counters that. Justin Trudeau is worried that people are angry. You know what I worry about? I worry about the nurse living in her van after eight years of Trudeau. I worry about the tent cities that never existed before he was Prime Minister, but now we see every single city in Canada. I worry about the 30,000 families that have lost loved ones to drug overdoses because of the hopeless economy and situation in which they find themselves. You know what I found, interestingly? I hold these rallies, and I invite every single person at every single rally to come and shake my hand. People aren't angry. They are hurting, and they are desperate for someone who gives them hope. And for so many millions of people, I am humbled by the fact that I am that person. I am the only one giving them hope that things can get better. It's going to be a battle. It's going to be a contest. And it makes the next election a ton more intriguing than the last one and probably than the one in 2019, uh, because that's the thing. Frustration and hurt is not the same as boiling over emotion uh, and anger and uh, harsh thoughts. People just feel desperate. And that's a huge difference than being uh, angry. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Why food share matters to us, how it got started, and why it so matters to the people that have it on their business card, that live and breathe it every day, that know going to bed at night, head hits the pillow, and they know they're making a difference in their community and all throughout Toronto. Andrea Thompson is the marketing communications manager for Food Share, and she kicks off our uh, coverage. You're, you know, there's going to be a lot of big name guests today, a lot of huge A-listers, and we thought, let's kick it off with our own A-lister, Andrea Thompson. You're the leadoff hitter today on the big show. How's today feel to you? feels great, Greg. We're so, so grateful to all of you folks at 640 Toronto. Like, it's just been amazing to see all, even in the prep to this, show up for us big time. You know, we often feel like a scrappy little nonprofit organization, even though, you know, we're we're connecting with about a quarter of a million people every year. We're, you know, we, we know we're doing good work, but to have you, you're, this whole media house come alongside us has been just incredible. We're really grateful. It matters to us as well. And and we love meeting you guys uh, six weeks ago. And we know this, uh, this is the first. It will be far from the last. Tell me about your involvement. When you see, I want to do something, I want to give back. Why did Food Share appeal to you yourself? And, and you thought this checks all the boxes of, of not just doing something important, but doing something that's sustainable. This isn't a one time, hey, let's make a donation thing. Let's do a, let's do something that's that, that makes me feel better. Let's make something that's sustainable for the community. What struck you about it? I mean, to me, it was the way in which, you know, I saw across the board, across the food system, really, colleagues at FoodShare who were working to really make, like, a systemic change. So not accepting the status quo, not accepting that, like, some folks should ever be food insecure, that we're actually trying to work, you know, way upstream, um, work on policy, you know, work on putting pressure to, to... to have a different way of doing things so that we actually have food as a human right here in the city of Toronto. And, you know, hopefully that, um, of course, spreads um, near and far. So that, to me, was the really unique proposition. I feel like, you know, and this isn't absolutely to do a disservice to our wonderful colleagues Mm -hmm. who work in, say, food banks. I always say they're doing life-saving urgent work but that's kind of like having a hospital that only has an emergency room and we're trying to say no you know there's preventative care there's ways to 
you know, avoid um, food insecurity happening in the first place, right? Let's stop people from um, experiencing poverty. Let's see what we can do, um, as well as giving people, you know, closer access to their food, working in urban growing, like being able to have a, a you know, a, a local produce market in their neighborhood, really bringing folks back to their food in a way. What I like about your organization is two things. One, um, you meet people where they're at in their own community. Um, that's a big, that's a big thing that I noticed right away. And second, I, I think of the proverb and I had to look it up to make sure I got all the words right. But if you give a man a fish, he's hungry again in an hour. If you teach him to catch a fish, you do him a good turn. And you kind of do more the second part about this, growing your own food, making sure that markets uh, can transpire in people's communities. So like I said, this, this is far from a one-off. This is almost changing people's minds and perspectives about how to feed each other. Absolutely. And I mean, the thing for us is like, you know, that that also implies that there's somebody there who's teaching the man to fish. We've got folks coming up from community. I mean, that to me is the like proudest part of the work that we do at Food Share is we come alongside community leaders who are already, you know, speaking up in their community and recognizing that there's a problem. Volunteers who run, you know, their own produce market. I know, um, you know, on your show, um, talking to, to Jesse, who is just a senior um, mm-hmm. living in community, had, you know, had had a background in social work, but was just seeing people aren't able to get the, the fresh produce that they need. What can I do? And it is amazing how much people step up and give their time and how much leadership there really is in every single community. Folks living with disabilities, um, racialized folks, um, seniors, like folks really want to take care of their friends and neighbors. And Future just really supports them to be able to do that themselves. Andrea Thompson's our guest, uh, the marketing communications manager for Food Share. I want to remind you where you can donate if you're listening to this. Call 437-782-0020. 437-782-0020. However much you can spare. Big is great, but no matter how small, it's all going to matter by the end of the day. Or you can go to foodshare.net slash 640, foodshare.net slash 640. I know it's a big um, it's a big move on the part of Foodshare folks as well to, to get FaceTime with decision makers, get time with community leaders, politicians at all three levels of government. Those seem like big priorities, given we're, we're weighing back and forth. What's the right policy to make sure there's less hungry people in Toronto? I mean, we need income-based interventions, right? We need to talk about the fact that food insecurity is really just like a subset of poverty. And so we need to do something um, about poverty. We need to do, we need to have more affordable housing. We need a a stronger social safety net. I mean, folks who are, uh, who depend on our Ontario um, ODSP, who are folks Mm -hmm. living with a disability, they're, they're living well below the poverty line. Like it's, it's legislated poverty. So we need to make sure that folks are taken care of. And and then folks who are working, we need livable wages. These aren't like, food isn't going to be something that's solved in isolation. It really needs to plug in. Um, And you, you know, in the newscast, um, there was an interview with uh, a colleague over at the Daily Bread Food Bank, and she was saying, like, the, the first thing that goes is food. The first thing that you can kind of scrimp and save on a bit. But what are the long-term impacts of that? You know, on 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 children's well-being, on on seniors' well-being. It shouldn't be the thing that they have to save up for. So if we can get a roof over people's head, if we can get affordable transit and other things, we really need you know uh, to to look out for each other in a more meaningful way than we are now. I know. I know. When we met up uh, six weeks ago, we we had that conversation. It's very difficult. We we have to provide a baseline. Uh, for for people, we're not gonna we're not gonna create magically completely equitable circumstances in life. But but Andrea, if we're gonna say shelters are right, a roof over somebody's head, if we're gonna say clean water is for bathing or drinking, we have to have food in these discussions. We have to. 
Yeah, and we really have to stop thinking about food as a commodity and as a human right. I mean, you know, we've got our colleagues at Metro on strike now mm-hmm. who are not even earning a living wage and they're cashing us out, you know, um, at the registers, right? And so, again, working people, I mean, in, f- again, food, going back to food banks, we know that about a quarter of the people who depend on food banks regularly are working people. So the idea of, you know, wages mm-hmm. and, and dignified work not precarious work, something that somebody can kind of depend, or not kind of, can very much depend on, is absolutely vital. Um, You know, folks are really struggling to just get by and to put food on the table. So creating a, you know, a a sustainable future. And and we always talk about this is not just about enough food to just survive. We really want people to have food so that they can thrive. Food can can become a central part of, you know, the family and the community. Yeah. Always better when people are looking through the the front of the car instead of the rear view mirror and thinking, I got to do this again. I got to do that again. We're glad we're partners with you. Thanks for the time today. Thank you, Greg. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. It's great to have the uh, acting executive director at Food Share Toronto in uh, and she is Julie Fiorini. It's great to have you with us. Thanks for being uh, here. And we saw each other about six weeks ago. We got robbed with that air quality that week. So we all want to come to the farm and stomp around and put our boots on and get our fingers real dirty. But we'll, we'll be doing it real soon. We know that. Yes. Thank you so much for having me, Greg. And um, on behalf of Foodshare, we are just so glad to have the 640 Toronto team support of our work uh, in food justice. So thank you for this. Well, I think we wanted, we were looking for a charity. It's interesting. Our, uh, our program director, Amanda Capito, like sent us out a, uh, we, we knew, we knew we weren't doing enough. We knew we wanted to be in the community more, be more active. And I think we also wanted something that just didn't, didn't feel like a, any charity's good charity, but we didn't want something that felt like it was a one-off. We didn't want something that felt like it was sort of, here's this, we feel good about ourselves. Thank you for donating. Pat on the back. We want something that was very sustainable and organic. And food share is all of that to us. Like when the more we've learned about it, and I know it's great to educate our listeners who are thinking, is it just this? Is it just that? And I'm like, it's a lot more than that. And it's the history you were telling me about earlier, we're going almost four decades deep now with it. That's right. That's right. Um, yeah, it's kind of unfortunate that food share started back in 1985 by um you know some folks who had the foresight to to really understand and identify that food banks were not going to be a long-term solution they were only a band-aid solution and there needed to be some real you know critical thinking around how to address the complex issue of food insecurity and so the mayor at the time for folks who remember Art Eggleton um, it was actually his undertaking and, you know, his staff that created FoodShare and um, started it with an initial, you know, influx of cash of 20 grand to, you know, start distributing some fresh produce and get it into the the hands of the folks who needed it the most. And yeah, here we are almost 40 years later, and um, we still need to address that very important issue of food insecurity and doing more than just handing out food or, you know, having um, church dinners. We need to address it. from yeah. a policy point of view. And I think, uh, you know, I think you could class it w- without demeaning it, it as a Band-Aid solution. We all have to put a Band-Aid on a cut or a wound sometimes or, or put it on our kids. But but in the long term, that doesn't get something systemic and organic going, like learning to grow your own food. These markets, this this story that uh, that Jesse McRae told us about setting up markets at at her seniors' apartment building complex, like 
that should almost be the rule rather than the exception. I hope it will be when stories like that emerge and grab us like that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And Jessie is amazing. And she is just one example of the many um, folks across the city that we partner with to get these community markets going in different areas of the cities, whether it's for seniors, residences, or, um, you know, Toronto community housing areas. We want to make sure that fresh produce and culturally appropriate produce gets into the hands of the of people that may not be able to access it, whether it's from a cost point of view or just, you know, mobility issues that that prevent them from accessing it. Our vision as an organization is all about seeing a Toronto being able to feed themselves, their loved ones, and their communities with dignity and joy. And so everything we do is around making sure we can make that happen. And I think the example that you're setting in Toronto with food share, you know, I always say this because you can imagine it comes up a fair bit during um, important important topics is like like big cities have big city benefits, but they'll also have big city struggles. They'll also have big city problems. But when you talk to me, Julie, about food insecurity, it, we're seeing it more now in the suburbs. We're seeing it more in smaller towns. So the lessons that I think people can grab from food share and take with them to, to build something in smaller communities than the biggest city in the country, those are valuable lessons because there's sort of a there's sort of a system that ends up working. And like you said, it's not just throwing something charitable together over the span of 24, 48 hours. This is 12 months a year, 24, 7, 365. Yeah, exactly. And we're talking about the very basic human right to food. And um, when you think about big cities like Toronto, it really is unconscionable that we have to even have this conversation, that one in five households are food insecure. Uh, But you're absolutely right, Greg. It is definitely not limited to just a city problem. This is happening across Canada. And we have seen the pandemic has magnified that and perpetuated it. So we really need to call on policymakers to like look very carefully at what needs to be done to make sure we address the root causes of food insecurity. And I know Jesse mentioned it in our chat at the top of the hour, but just, you know, there's always going to be levels of bureaucracy. There's always going to be red tape. What what I've been impressed by with food share is you tend not to take no for an answer and just mm-hmm. keep push, push, pushing. And and eventually that knocks down some of these barriers. She had to deal with it with, you know, a, a building landlord or an owner saying, what do you mean you're going to set up a food market in our lobby or outside on the grounds? And she said, you're going to see the benefits. And they did. And so, you know, open minds can create open, you know, wonderful scenarios like that. Oh, absolutely. And and that's the thing. We really partner with our communities across the city to, you know, activate programs like markets, community markets, um, our urban farming projects, uh, community workshops and community kitchens. Everything we do is rooted in community and we actually couldn't carry out our work or our mission without our partners, um, well, amazing partners like Jesse. We can't thank you enough for being part of this today. We're oh, so glad to partner, you. and this is just the start of our uh, our relationship together. Yeah, we we can't thank 640 Toronto enough, and your amazing listeners. Thank you so much for your support. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. A lot of backing, a lot of backing for the uh, TVO workers that are out on strike. Uh, They got into a legal strike position last Friday. They've been picketing for a few days now, and there's been a lot of support. 
other people I love in the media. Sabrina Matto from National Post wrote, TVO is a vital source of local journalism and intelligent debate. They've been key in bringing attention to the housing crisis, platforming renters and younger voices, while others use the same pundit lineups decade after decade. Exactly. She ain't talking about our show. I can tell you that. TVO employees deserve fair pay and job stability. Josh Matlow has showed up and given support. I know uh, Nate Erskine-Smith, the Ontario Liberal leader, has backed them just like he backed and and went to the picket lines with the Metro employees. So this is where it's all at right now. Um, I'm eager to bring on our next guest. Uh, She's uh, a union leader with the TVO workers and been a TVO for a long time. She also gave our show some nice props. Uh, She said at one point uh, last week, what a bananas job being a morning radio host is. Shout out to all the people who make the machine run. You folks are champs. Wow. Meredith Martin joins us now from TV Ontario. Thanks for the shout out. You could do this. You could have a two hour nap every afternoon ignore the world around you. Say this is my time to lay down in the mid afternoon. Nice breeze coming through the window. I, I think I'm selling it pretty hard that it's not so bad. Is that how you do it? Yes. uh, Okay. Daddy gets his time. Daddy and husband gets his daddy and husband time alone to sleep and recover and and think about what I've done to myself uh, all all week. Yes. Good job. That's a good (laughs) plan. That's for sure. I'm not a good napper. (laughs) I know. I, uh, some people aren't, but I can sleep anywhere, uh, anytime. Doesn't matter where crowded bus, uh, weird person's arm on my shoulder on a flight. I can do it. I can uh, I can collapse right at. I mentioned all this support, Meredith. It is there. Um, uh, did you know what it would feel like? Did you know that that again? Nobody. It's like it's a little like going to your own funeral before you die. You've got a lot of support from a lot of people who come out and say this is what your your work and what you put together means to all of us. It's been incredibly emotional. Um, there's a kid from Vaughn who came down yesterday. He's a high school student. And he told us about his experience with PVO. He listens to it all day. He reads the newsletter. He listens to the On Poly podcast on his way to school. He watches the agenda every night. And I just, it has been a bit overwhelming. We've had so many donuts, like hundreds of donuts have come by the line. People have been incredibly supportive. And I have to say it has been a very emotional experience. How close are we to getting, um, you know, sometimes a a labor dispute happens and then the sides dig in even deeper and you think this is not going to be uh, a short there. I mentioned the Metro workers who will be close closer to 30 days out than 20 days out, I think, as of today. Um, How dug in are uh, are the TVO workers and how hopeful are you that this action leads to more more, you know, comprehensive and, and fair bargaining? I'm very hopeful, but it does feel like TVO has dug in. Their messaging has been uh, very uh, friendly, i.e. they say they're available to negotiate and that kind of thing. But the lead negotiator is up at her cottage. And the only person that we're allowed to talk to apparently is her. So um, they say one thing and they do another, which is basically how they've managed the organization for about 10 years. And it's, uh, it's tricky. Like, I don't I don't know how to explain it other than to Mm. say it's they don't seem to be beholden to the truth the way the journalists are. When did you start to worry in this calendar year that it would even lead to this? Did you have a a bad feeling from the beginning? Usually people say it, it will only get so bad. It will get worked out. Let's let's find something that works for everybody here. When did you start to really worry? 
I mean, frankly, I've been worried for over a year because we were tied under built 124 and our weight, that was a, across the spectrum thing that was imposed on the public sector. And TVO had already experienced 10 years of wage cuts. And so I knew that we, there's only so much you can take, right? So I knew that we were ready to seriously bargain last round. And but then we had Bill 124. So it, it got kind of delayed by three years. And it's very hard to explain when you're that far behind how high you have to get in order to make any type of gain. I now make 15% less than I did in 2012. So I've sort of been seeing this for a really long time and trying to prep the membership on it. And then also trying to prep the union and TVO to be like, hey, I have a feeling this is going to be a tough one. And uh, we're bringing people on board and people are starting to, mm. I mean, we've, I've, we've gotten huge uh, strike mandates. So definitely everybody was convinced that we would get here. but. Um, or like I had the moral support of the group, but it's, yeah. it's been very hard. Meredith Martin's joining us on Toronto today on 640 Toronto um, with Greg Brady. She works uh, at TV Ontario. She's the president of the TVO branch of the Canadian Media Guild. We talked about that balance. TVO is quite unique. I know um, your colleague Steve Pakin was talking about it yesterday and, and that got a, a, a lot of play. Steve's been really important in the media landscape for a long, long time and, and credible and has that integrity to, to back those words. Uh, but I'd ask, we talked about that balance between um, donations and government funding. And w- when this gets settled, and inevitably, hopefully it does, um, do you do, do we need to look at more of a balance of, of, it's tough, it's tough to go to people and say, if you like this, we need to contribute. But that's some, that's very much a modern world. You see Substacks and Patreons and subscriptions to things that are uh, that, that we wouldn't have thought about 15, 20 years ago. Does the whole model need to change to some extent? I, I agree. I think it does. I think you really need proper leadership at TVO. The people at the top have no clue how to make the product. And they're not normal in like a car manufacturing company. You don't expect the CEO of Ford to know how to be a mechanic or create Mm -hmm. a car. But at TVO, you should have people at the top who have some notion of how to create digital content or education. And we haven't had that for years. And that's why it gets harder and harder to make it work. The people at the top spend about a year deciding to change the logo, but they have no real uh, knowledge on how to do the work. And I think it makes it hard to ask people for money because they don't know what to ask for. So what I hope is that they start taking the advice of the people at the bottom who know how to run the organization and execute as opposed to everything being top down. Because we've seen how that works and it doesn't. Yeah, I only have 45 seconds, but I, I look at PBS and I think we mentioned this last time. You got a great combination. The member stations pay dues that that may not work with this particular model. But bottom line, there's pledge drives, donations and then private individuals. But if, when you donate, yeah, telethons, when you donate to PBS, you actually do feel like you're a stakeholder. And and I think making people feel that way with TVO just to a, just a little more of a push that way is a, probably a positive thing. I think it is, too. We have a strike fund, and it has over $3,000. Now, those are all small donations mm-hmm. because people care. I love small donations. I'll take donations in any like form it comes, right? Yeah. TVO has been very snobby about it. They were like, we just want big donations. And I'm like, 
this is the people's network. People need to have a stake. Exactly what you're saying. Yeah. Meredith Martin uh, joining us from uh, TVO and, of course, uh, president of the Canadian Media Guild there. Thank you so much for the time. We'll stay on the story. I I hate when something's a story on a Monday, the the circumstances are the same, and then it gets dropped from the news cycle. So we're going to stay on this one for sure. Awesome. Thank you so much. You bet. Meredith Martin joining us. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Are you in or out? Just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. So are we in or out? You're out. You are over and out. No, 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 no. Insulted him a little bit. I'm okay with it, but now you're making me feel weird. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. It really is. And uh, by the way, uh, yesterday I I will point out a neighbor of mine, not a next door neighbor, not a guy on either side, uh, Sheba, we talked about is it sad to eat by yourself? And I get out of the car, I'm barely one step out with my bad left leg right now. And uh, and he's out walking his dog and he says, I eat by myself all the time and I'm not sad. And I'm like, hey, can you just let me get out of the car first before you chastise me for my. My bad take that it's it's tough to watch people eat by themselves. There's nothing wrong with eating by yourself. It's actually one of life's pleasures, I think. Uh, the movie the movie I've only done the one time, and I had nobody to go with. I had a four-year-old and a two-year-old. I wanted to see The Dark Knight Rises, and my wife was in oh. London at the Olympics, and I would have dragged her to that. She was like, really? Another superhero movie? You're an adult. No, There's that's no not kids a superhero anywhere. movie. Yes, it is. No. Batman's a detective. with No, the, the yes. Dark Knight and the Dark Knight Rises, I don't consider them superhero movies. They're better than that. Yeah, exactly. Oh, good. Okay. All right. Well, we're on the same page. Let's see if we still are after we talk all about this. There was a time for this law, but not anymore. See, this is our time to dance. It is our way of, of celebrating life. It's the way it was in the beginning. It's the way it's always been. That's the way it should be now. Oh, my God. I'm getting <laughs> emotional about this. Kevin Bacon at his apex. Uh, Lori Singer is the beautiful Ariel. She's a lot taller than him, but whatever. It worked out. And uh, the Reverend Shaw Moore, you know, that the religious maniac of a dad who would ban dancing in, uh, in a community. But we saw a story about a college that had banned dancing. Um, and it got us in, in uh, Liberty University in uh, Blacksburg, Virginia. So they w- there's a local petition going around um, saying it's weird. They have cheerleaders and they have dance teams and, and they have male and female dancers. But um, but the Liberty Board of Trustees, Sheba, does not allow unsanctioned dances. I don't understand that. So it's not actually you can be on a competitive dance though? team and shake it all out. Shake it off. Shake it up. Shake it on. You can do all that shaking. <laughs> But you can't, they don't actually have dances at the, you, you, like, what if you start dancing in the hallway at Liberty University? No, They're I gonna, don't think you're allowed to. You're not allowed to, which is odd. But we saw this, and I don't think high school dances quite have the prominence. And I know this because my uh, soon-to-be 12th grader, last year would have been the first year they would have been sort of sanctioned or allowed. And I'd love to hear from teachers on this. Um, high school dances... In or out. I want them to happen. And I got told by somebody last year, we have tried at certain high schools and kids just don't buy tickets. Oh, they don't show up. They don't show up. And yet you probably need a certain baseline. You can't just have 38 people show up. But my recollection, grade nine all the way through 13, Sheba, was you you absolutely, everybody went. Ever, you weren't too cool not to go. You weren't too nerdy not to go and stand on the wall like those scenes in 16 Candles. The high school dance was where you were. On a Friday, and there were like six of them a year. Start of the year dance, fall dance, Halloween dance with costumes, Easter dance, Valentine's dance. 
we, there were six or seven dances a year in high school. I, I'll be curious to see what your uh, your future household high schooler says about dances, whether yeah, there I are any or not. Go. I don't think he'll go. I never went to high school dances. I didn't. In grade nine, maybe, just to check it out and see what the hype was about. But then after that, honestly, I grew up in Ottawa. Hull was across the street. And if you were female... You could just get into the bars and the clubs. Honestly, at 15 You left all old, these boys sitting there going, oh, it's my chance to dance with the girls tonight. No, and we were and then the you, didn't, you stiffed them all. We were 15 and they would let us in. We guess, su- am I allowed to say that on the air? Yeah, you are. Okay. Yeah, you are. Of course you are. But I am in on high school dances. I, I think that the kids need it. I adore them. If anybody needs me, I don't care if it's not my kid's school or a district. If there are parent chaperones needed for high school dances, I'm there. I will make sure that that hands are Gord. I'll make sure that hands are where they're supposed, supposed to, to be. be. Okay. Now you probably don't want me DJing. I don't no. like, but I can get everybody no. going to living on a prayer. It'll feel like a New England Patriots game. It's easy to get them on it, the dance floor. It's harder to keep them there. Well, sure, but I Nelly, <laughs> that's uh, that hot in here. Yeah, come on, that, yep. is that not still relevant? I know that song's well, like know. 15 years old now. I can play some of what uh, Sheba heard at LL Cool J the other night. Yeah, there you I go. can make it happen. I can make it rain. I better not do that. High school dances in or out. And you can you can answer any which way. Did you enjoy them? Did you go to them? What's with kids now that they're not going with all this snap facing that they're doing at home?